Chapter thirty nine of Notwithstanding by Mary Chumley. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Chapter thirty nine. All other joy of life he strove to warm and magnify and catch them to his lip. But they had suffered shipwreck with the ship and gazed upon him sallow from the storm. George Meredith. Roger went to Fontainebleau. He looked at the oaks as they came close up on both sides of the line, and thought that they needed thinning, and made a mental note of the inefficiency of French forestry. And he put up at an old-fashioned inn, with a prim garden in front, with tiny pebbled walks, and a fountain, and four stunted, clipped acacia trees. And he found the doctor in the course of the next morning, and the doctor, who had not realised Dick's death under another name, gave him the notary's address and the notary explained by means of an interpreter that Monsieur de Guette had warned him emphatically not to give up the will to his mother if she came for it, or send for it after his death, only to Monsieur Roger Manvers, his cousin, or Mademoiselle Manvers, his sister. And when Roger had presented his card, and the credentials with which his English lawyer had supplied him, the will was produced. The notary opened it, and showed him Dick's signature, almost illegible, but still Dick's, and below the doctor's and his own, and at the bottom of the sheet the two words, Annette George's, in Annette's large childish handwriting. Roger's heart contracted, and for a moment he could see nothing but those two words. And the notary explained that the lady's signature had not been necessary, but she had witnessed it to pacify the dying man. Then Roger sat down, with a loudly hammering heart, and read the will slowly, translated to him sentence by sentence. It gave him everything. Halver and Wormsley and Swale and Scorby and the Yorkshire and Scotch properties and the street in the heart of Liverpool and the new river share. There was an annuity of five hundred a year out of the estate and the house at Alborough to Harry and the same sum to Mary Dean for life and then in trust to her daughter together with a farm in Devonshire. But except for these bequests everything was left to Roger. Dick had forgotten Jones, his faithful servant, and he had forgotten also that he had parted with his new river share the year before to meet with his colossal losses on the day, still talked of in racing circles, when Flamingo ran out of the course. And the street in Liverpool, that gold mine, was mortgaged up to the hilt. But still, in spite of all, it was a fine inheritance. Roger's heart beat. He'd been a penniless man all his life, and all his life he had served another's will, another's caprice, another's heedlessness. Now, at last, he was his own master. And Halva, his old home, Halva, which he loved with passion, as his uncle and his grandfather had loved it before him, Halva was his. Mechanically he turned the page, and looked at the last words of the will upon it, and poor Dick's scrawl, and the signature of the witnesses and all the joy ebbed out of his heart as quickly as it had rushed in, as he saw again the two words, Annette George's. He did not sleep that night. He lay in a bed which held no rest for him, and a nameless oppression fell upon him. He was overtired, and he had suffered severely mentally during the past week, and it seemed as if the room itself exercised some sinister influence over him. Surely the mustard-coloured roses of the wallpaper knew too much, Surely the tall gilt mirror had reflected and then wiped from its surface scenes of anguish and despair. Roger sat up in bed, and saw himself a dim figure with a shock head reflected in it. 
The moonlight lay in a narrow band upon the floor. The blind tapped against the window-ledge. Was that a woman's white figure crouching near the window, with bent head against the pane? It was only the moonlight upon the curtain, together with the shadow of the tree outside. Roger got up and fastened the blind so that the tapping ceased, and then went back to bed again. But sleep would not come. He had read over the translation of the will several times. It, and the will itself, were locked into the little bag under his pillow. His hand touched it from time to time. And as the moonlight travelled across the floor, Roger's thoughts travelled also. His slow, honest mind never could be hurried, as those who did business with him were well aware. It never rushed, even to an obvious conclusion. It walked. If urged forward, it at once stood stock-still. But if it moved slowly of its own accord, it also evaded nothing. Then Dick must have distrusted his mother just as Janie had done. Roger had been shocked by Janie's lack of filial piety, but he at once concluded that Dick must have had grounds for his distrust. It did not strike him that Janie and Dick might have had the same grounds, that some sinister incident locked away in their childish memories had perhaps warned them of the possibility of a great treachery. No doubt Janie was not mentioned in Dick's will, because it had always been understood that noise would go to her. Lady Louisa had given out that she had so left it years before. "'That was what was in the old woman's mind, no doubt,' Roger said to himself. "'To let Janie have noise, and get Halver and the rest for Harry, if possible, even if she had to destroy Dick's will in my favour. She never took it into her calculation, poor thing, that by the time Dick died she might as be incapable of making another will as he was himself. Seems as if paralysis was in the family. If she knew I'd got Halver after all, she'd cut Janie out of noise like a shot if she could, and leave it to Harry.' "'But she can't. "'And Harry'll do very nicely in that little house at Alborough "'with five hundred a year. "'Play on the beach, make a collection of shells, and an aquarium, "'see anemones and shrimps. "'And his wife can take charge of him, relieve poor Janey. "'I shall put in a new bathroom at Seaview, "'and I shall furnish it for him. "'Some of the things Mary Dean would do. "'He would like those great gilt mirrors, and the sporting prints, "'and she'd like the walnut suite.' "'That marriage may not be such a bad thing after all. "'Hope poor Aunt Louisa won't understand anything about it, "'or my coming in for Halver. "'It would make her perfectly mad. "'Might kill her. "'But perhaps that wouldn't be such a very bad thing either. "'Silver lining to cloud, perhaps, "'and give Janie a chance of a little peace.' "'Roger's mind travelled slowly over his inheritance, "'and verified piece by piece that it was a very good one. "'In spite of Dick's recklessness, much still remained.' The new river share was gone. Dick had got over a hundred thousand for it, but it had been worth more. And the house in Eaton Square was gone, and Prince's Street was as good as gone. He should probably be wise to let the mortgages foreclose on it. But Halver remained intact, save for the loss of the Rayburn and the Oak Avenue. How cracked of Dick to have sold the Rayburn and cut down the Oak Avenue, when, if he had only consulted him, Roger could have raised the money by a mortgage on Wellmsley. But he ought not to be blaming Dick after what he had done for him. On the contrary, he ought to put up a good monument to him in Rift Church. And he certainly would do so. Halver was his. Halver was his. Now at last he had a free hand. Now at last he could do his duty by the property, 
unhampered by constant refusals to be allowed to spend money where it ought to be spent. He should be able to meet all his farmers on a better footing now. No need to put off their demands from year to year, and lose the best among them because he could not meet even their most reasonable claims. He could put an entire new roof on Scorby Farm now, instead of tinkering at it, and he pulled down those wretched ferry cottages and rebuild them on higher ground. He knew exactly where he would put them. It was a crying shame that it had not been done years ago. And he would drain men a marsh, and then the men and people would not have agues and goiters. And he should make a high paved way across the water meadows to Walesham, so that the children could get to school dry-shod. He could hardly believe that at last he was his own master. No more indicting of those painfully constructed letters which his sense of duty had made incumbent on him, letters which it had taken him so long to write, and which were probably never read. Dick had never attended to business. If people could not attend to business, Roger wondered what they could attend to. And he would make it right about Jones. Jones need never know his master had forgotten him. Roger would give him an annuity of a hundred a year, and tell him it was by Dick's wish. Dick certainly would have wished it if he had thought of it. Roger gave a sigh of relief at the thought of Jones. And he should pension off old Toby and Hesketh and Noikes. They had worked on the estate for over forty years. Roger settled quantities of detail in numberless little mental pigeonholes as the moonlight travelled across the floor. All through the day and the long evening, whenever he had thought of Annette, his mind had stood stock-still and refused to move. And now, at last, as if it had waited till this silent hour, the thought of Annette came to him again, and this time would not be denied. Once more his resisting mind winced and stood still, and Roger, who connived at its resistance, forced it slowly, reluctantly, to do his bidding. He could marry Annette now. Strange how little joy that thought evoked. He would have given everything he possessed two days ago, not that he possessed anything, to have been able to make her his wife. If two days ago he had been told that he would inherit Halborough and be able to marry her, his cup would have been full. Well, now he could have her, if she would take him. He was ashamed, but not as much as he ought to have been, of his momentary doubt of her. Fortunately, only Janey knew of that doubt. Annette would never know that he had hesitated. Now that he came to think of it, she had gone away from him so quickly that he had not had time to say a word. Roger sighed heavily. He knew in his heart that he had not quite trusted Annette when he ought to have done. But he did not absolutely trust Janey. And Janey had said Annette was innocent. He did not cudgel his brains as to whether he would still have wanted to marry her if she had been Dick's mistress, because she never had been. That was settled. Annette was as pure as Janey herself, and he ought to have known it without Janey having to tell him. Roger turned uneasily on his bed, and then took the goad which only honest men possess, and applied it to his mind. It winced and shrank back, and then, seeing no help for it, made a step forward. Annette had given him his inheritance. He faced that at last. She had got the will made. But for her, Dick would have died intestate. And but for her, 
it was doubtful whether the will would ever have come to light. Neither the notary nor the doctor had at first connected the death of Mr. Manvers with that of Dick Leggett, even when Roger showed them the notice in the papers which he had brought with him. Annette had done everything for him. Well, he would do everything for her. He would marry her and be good to her all his life. Yes, but would she care to marry a man who could only arrive at his inheritance by smirching her good name? The will could not be proved without doing that. What wicked folly of Dick to have asked her, poor child, to witness it! And how exasperatingly like him! He never considered the result of any action. The slur on Annette's reputation would be publicly known. The doctor and the notary, who had told him of Annette's relation to Dick, could but confirm it. No denial from them was possible. And sooner or later the ugly scandal would be known by every creature at Riff. Roger choked. Now he realised that. Was he still willing to marry her? He was willing. He was more than willing. He was absolutely determined. He wanted her as he had never wanted anything in his life. He would marry her, and together they would face the scandal and live it down. Janey would stick to them. He loathed the thought of the whispering tongues destroying his wife's good name. He sickened at it. But it was inevitable. But would Annette on her side be willing to marry him and bear the obloquy that must fall upon her? Would she not prefer to leave Riff and him for ever? That was what he must ask her. In his heart he believed she would still take him. She would bear it for my sake, he said to himself. Annette is very brave, and she thinks nothing of herself. A faint glimmer of her character was beginning to dawn in her lover's shaken mind. The son of my soul, tame canary, fancy portrait of his own composition, on which he had often fondly dwelt, did not prove much of a mainstay at this crisis, perhaps because it lacked life. Who can lean upon a wooden heart? It is sad that some of us never perceive the nobility of those we love until we need it. Roger had urgent need of Annette's generosity and unselfishness, urgent need of her humility. He unconsciously wanted all the greatest qualities of her heart and mind from her, he who had been drawn towards her, as Janey well knew, only by little things, by her sweet face and her violet eyes and the curl on her white neck. After all, would it be best for her that they should part? Something in Roger cried out in such mortal terror of its life that that thought was dismissed as unendurable. "'We can't part,' said Roger to himself. "'The truth is, I can't live without her, and I won't. We'll face it together.' But there was anguish in the thought. His beautiful lady, who loved him, that he who held her so dear, only asked to protect her from pain and ill— that he should be the one to cast a slur upon her. But there was no way out of it. He sobbed against his pillow, and in the silence came the stammered, half-choked words, Annette! Annette! But only the room heard them, which had heard the same appeal on a September night, just a year ago. End of chapter 39